We met in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention. And uh, at first it started like a fairy tale. It felt too good to be true, which is often how these abusive relationships start. The abuser is very skilled at being able to reel in their prey by being adoring, by being supportive, by being complimentary. But then the darkness started to seep in, gradually. Sylvia and me. This episode of Sylvia and Me is brought to you by Stella Mints. Did you know that one third of Americans are living with extreme stress? Sadly, this has only been compounded by the pandemic, leaving millions of people like you and me trying to figure out how to cope with the ever-increasing pressures from work and life. That's exactly what Stella Mints were made for. Powered by CBD, Stella Mints are a fast and simple way to feel more calm and clear-minded throughout the day. Stella Mints start at $30 per pack of mints and come in peppermint, lemon, and matcha. For a limited time, listeners of Sylvia and Me get 15% off Stella Mints. Simply go to StellaMints.com. That's S-T-E-L-L-O-Mints.com and use the code Sylvia. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. My name is Tanya Salvaratnam. I'm the author of Assume Nothing, The Story of Intimate Violence. I'm also the Senior Advisor for Gender Justice Narratives at the Pop Culture Collaborative. Welcome to Sylvia and Me. Tanya, I thank you for joining us or joining me here today. Um, we're going to talk about a topic that is a difficult one to talk about and one that I don't think a lot of people uh, really understand some of the, the differences between uh, what you call intimate violence and uh, what we call uh, sexual harassment, domestic violence, Intimate violence is something that is so difficult for so many women, or there are some men also, so for so many people to express because intimate violence usually, well, it happens in a committed relationship. And for those who don't know, you were in a committed relationship. You're the former girlfriend of who was back in 2018, the attorney general. Eric for New York, Eric Schneiderman. Can you tell us uh, relationships like this don't just happen because I don't know anyone who just goes into an abusive relationship knowing it's abusive. So how, how did you guys meet and what was the progression? We met in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention. And uh, at first it started like a fairy tale. It felt too good to be true, which is often how these abusive relationships start. The abuser is very skilled at being able to reel in their prey by being adoring, by being supportive, by being complimentary. Um, and also it, felt at the time that we had many common interests in uh, spirituality and meditation, and also it, that our values were aligned. And so I felt at, 
the time that we had a lot in common. Uh, but then the darkness started to seep in gradually. Now you've mentioned, I've heard you mention um, that you talk about that you were, you use the words ripe for, for the picking. And usually what does happen is that women who wind up in these situations, as you said, it was like a fairy tale. Um, he adored you, he gave you compliments. Um, was it a time in your life where you're an accomplished, Emmy-nominated, award-winning uh, producer, you're an artist, on the outside, it seems like everyone would want to be you. Was there something going on that you were looking for somebody to uh, adore you and, and really take you on and, and, and not take care of you, but treat you like you were, you were the best thing ever. Well, I didn't know what I was looking for, but I felt that I was ready for a relationship. I had come off of the heels of a string of disappointments. I had had a series of miscarriages. I had been diagnosed with two types of cancer for which I had surgery. And then I uh, had a divorce. And so at the time that Eric Schneiderman and I met, while I was very accomplished with regard to my work and very surrounded by my community, my friends, uh, what I say is I was ripe for the breaking and it was the perfect storm. And he seemed to take a great pleasure in identifying strong women, making them his girlfriends and then breaking them down, which is what he was able to do with me. But then I was able to kind of flip the script and uh, begin to have agency again over my life. And that, that turning point is what I wanted to capture in the book as well, to hopefully help others find their way out to. Well, let's talk about what you define as intimate violence as opposed to domestic abuse. What is intimate violence? Intimate violence is a subset of domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And it happens in the sexual context and it can take many forms in my case and trigger warning in advance, but uh, it involved choking and slapping and spitting uh, during sex, never outside of sex. And it's very hard to talk about, uh, it's insidious. Uh, what I hope that I can do is shift the perception of what a victim looks like because I've had so many people reach out to me, women and even men who've said that they've had eerily similar experiences of violence in the sexual context. And they are of many different generations and, and, and they're of all different walks of life. And also to shift the perception of what an abuser looks like because people thought of Eric Schneiderman as a liberal hero as a progressive champion, as an advocate for women's rights and safety. And that's the thing. So many of these men are supposedly champions. They're allies of the, especially the Me Too movement. I mean, that was a movement that they could just get on and say, oh, I'm, I'm behind that. Oh, this is disgusting, all these men. And they're powerful men. For a lot of these, they think, 
that's it. They're untouchable. That's right. They think that they, um, that their public facing good deeds can be a shield for their private facing bad deeds. And in particular, the way that they abuse people, not just people in committed relationships with them or um, people in intimate relationships with them, but also in their workplace relationships, as we've seen with so many powerful men. Power, um, it, power systems lend themselves to abuse because they lend themselves to hierarchies wherein people feel like they need to dominate over other people. And this story broke in 2018. It broke in The New Yorker. Um, you were one of the first three, I believe, women who came forward. It was at the time when the Me Too movement had just started. You had Harvey Weinstein. You had, um, I, I can't even remember the names of some of, that, uh, some of them. But what is the difference between a Harvey Weinstein, uh, Bill Cosby, and now you have an Andrew Cuomo? I, you know, there are, um, you've mentioned there are different types of harm. And what you're talking about, intimate violence, as you said, you didn't have any bruises on you. It was all sexual. Um, it, it was something so horrific that, I mean, most people don't like talking about uh, their intimate relationships, let alone the fact that they're being abused during one. So how do you see the difference between you know, you have Harvey Weinstein, who was very, very powerful. You had Bill Cosby, who, you know, was powerful in, in what he did. And you have so many of these men who um, really prey on employees, their power over them, on, on their partners, on, on so many different levels. How do you see the, the different segments of harm, which is to me, it's difficult for me to even uh, start talking about it. Well, uh, I'll start by saying that harm is harm and one should center the person who has been harmed and acknowledge the ways in which the harm has impacted their lives. Stepping away from the center, it's important to delineate between the different types of harm in my case, I was dealing with intimate violence in a committed relationship. I consented to the relationship. I did not consent to the abuse. And the violence took many forms, not just the intimate violence, but it was also the gaslighting, the verbal abuse, the mental abuse. The, and, and there are so many other types of abuse that people deal with. People deal with digital abuse, with cyber stalking, cyber bullying. They de deal with legal abuse where they're entangled in the legal system because their abusive partner cannot let them go. And I have so many friends who've dealt with that. In the case of Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, uh, <laughs> I mean, where do we begin? Especially knowing now that Cosby has been released from prison. On a technicality. It is, call it. Uh, the, the legal system continues to fail victims and survivors over and over again, the legal system needs to be overhauled. In the case of Harvey Weinstein, he was a serial predator um, who used his power to entrap women into sexual relationships with him um, or you know, to grope them, 
to demean them, to make them feel like unless they did what he wanted, they would never work in Hollywood. In Bill Cosby's case, he was drugging and raping women. It's, it's, it's goes without saying that it's unbelievable. Uh, it's so it, believable though. Yes, it's unbelievable that, that it's been going on for so long. You know, if you go back to the history of, of marriage or years ago when, when marriage first started, the female was basically owned, was pro property of their spouse. They had to give up everything. They had to follow their mm -hmm. spouse. They owned nothing. Um, it wasn't until the 70s that we actually were able to get credit on our own without a male. And the Me Too movement, when it did start, you had women who were going through this for, for, for years and years and years and never said anything because they just thought it was the way things were supposed to be. Some were very afraid to say anything and others with, with not the raping um, and not the, it was just the, the harassment and, you know, the touching and the, the making snide jokes and, and so on. Um, so the Me Too movement started women and men, started people being aware, some phony, but some really meaning within their heart that, wow, finally. I've, one of the things is, do you think the Me Too movement has crested or do you see a new wave? <laughs> Your eyes just popped. <laughs> I, uh, the opposite. I feel the Me Too movement has many more waves to come. And I wrote the book in part to amplify those waves. One of those waves is exposing intimate violence in committed relationships. Another is calling out the enablers. And until we call out the enablers, we won't do away with the abuse because the predators don't get away with the abuse without the enablers around them. And we see that time and time and time again with Harvey Weinstein and the web of agents around him and producers around him and people who worked with him and his family, um, with Bill Cosby, same, and with Eric Schneiderman, his ex-wife, and all the people who were very aware of his behavior. But what's important is that people, um, is that people feel emboldened to speak their truths because you never know when you speak your truth whose life you might be saving whom you might prevent from being harmed by that abuser. And that's what I wanted to do. Another wave of the Me Too movement is encouraging bystanders to be upstanders because too often we see that people know something's wrong, but they're too nervous, they're too scared to engage their friend or loved one who might be in an abusive relationship in conversation about it or they might be too scared to say something to support their friend publicly should that friend decide to become public. And I know that happened in my story with some of the other women who were involved. And as I have found since the New Yorker story in 2018, there were many, many other women than were in the original investigation by Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow, who had also been abused by Eric Schneiderman. And the pattern goes back over 40 years 
And so I think to myself, there are so many women before me who could have stopped his pattern of abuse, but didn't. And I can't be angry at them. Everyone has their own reasons for staying silent. Some out of fear, some out of irrational fear. I feel that by speaking their truths and exposing the abuse that they might be marking themselves in some way. But I believe in holding my head up high, um, focusing on my recovery and surrounding myself with people who have my back. And for me, you know, I have to work. So I have to show up to work. Um, but there are too many people who stay in abusive relationships because they are dependent on the abuser. And that's where I feel organizations and governmental resources really need to um, be there for the victims and survivors who do not have the resources that I was fortunate enough to have. I was fortunate enough to have a community around me, amazing friends. And also I was fortunate enough to still have a job. That's key. The, we know that during the pandemic, the amount of abuse skyrocketed because people were not able to leave their abusive relationship. There was no place to go. Um, what do you say to these, again, I won't just say women. I mean, we're, what do we say to the people who have, who are being abused how do they, if they've had to live with their abuser for the last year, year and a half, without being able to escape due to what we've been going through, where do they even find the resources? What advice could you give them to, to do? Well, first, I would say to them, they're not alone and they're not crazy. Second, I would say that there are organizations out there to help you and provide legal services, counseling and shelter. It is a very hard step to take to get away from one's abuser. The most dangerous place in the world for a woman is in her own home if she is a victim. The most dangerous time for a woman is uh, when she's with an abuser is when she's trying to leave. So it's very important to have a safety plan and that would be crafted with a domestic violence expert. And if the victim cannot reach out for help, uh, him or herself, to identify the person that they trust who can be that lifeline for them and connect with the organization that can provide them with an exit. So that's what I would say to them. I also feel like the government has to do so much more, all governments do, to address the domestic violence crisis, which as you said, has been heightened during the pandemic. The increases in domestic violence and also in femicide, in the murder of women around the world. Yes. Because we're dealing with economic instability, we're dealing with the added stressors of the pandemic. All these um, factors, these negative factors result in, um, in more reasons for abuse to occur. And also I think of the children that oh. are in lockdown with their abusive parents and who might be victims of the abuse themselves. So there need to be more resources for organizations that provide support. And there needs to be more done to address the problem in general by strengthening the laws and accountability. What gave you the 
courage to speak out and then not just speak out, but to write this very, very um, intimate, candid story of what you've gone through. Well, I was driven by conscience more than courage. Okay. Uh, I had no intention of coming forward when I was first out of the relationship. But this was in fall of 2017. But within a month of the relationship ending, I found out through a mutual friend about another girlfriend, previous girlfriend of Eric Schneiderman, who had an eerily similar story. And she was almost a decade before me. And that's when I realized that there had to be other victims out there. And that if I didn't do something to stop him, that he would abuse more women after me. And that's when I decided to speak with David Remnick of The New Yorker. Also, because I'm a writer and I'm grateful that I'm a writer and an artist, I had been taking notes the whole time. And then after the story came out and I heard from so many people from all over the world sharing their stories, I decided that I wanted to write a book for them. And I wanted to write a book that would um, give people a window into the stages I went through to get entangled in an abusive relationship and how I was able to get out and then leave the reader with resources so that they could help themselves or help their friends or loved ones in abusive relationships. So that really was the, the catalyst for my writing the book. And as you just said, the stages of the relationship, because we talked about the fact that you're a strong woman, you're an accomplished woman, and yet this man had a pattern that he had been able to hone and tune for 40 years. At the least. The gaslighting, the, the grooming, um, where you start trying to feel that you can help, that you can turn it around. And I know that he would apologize and talk about stress and whatnot. And then we fall back into going, okay, you know, he's, and you, you try to remember the good times and go, eh, it was just a one-off, but a one-off goes two, three, four, ten, 10. And this kind of abuse is not something that people can see. Mm -hmm. because there are no bruises. And you did talk in the book, you talked about your own family and your, your dad and your mom. And that situation, you could see the abuse, you could see the bruises. How did you feel about writing this book? And how did your family take to this? Had they known that you were going through any of this? Not while it was happening. Um, but then when after I decided to come forward, I prepared them uh, for the story to come out in the New Yorker. And uh, while it was uncomfortable and painful for all of us, I hope that they recognize why I did it. And also the good that came out of it, the conversations that were sparked because, um, because I was talking about it and the conversations that are continuing to be sparked. I hear from people on a daily basis 
uh, and people of all ages saying that after reading my book, they helped me understand, they, it helped them understand more what they had gone through. And in many cases, it has sparked them to share their own stories that they had never shared before. And also to take action. I received a note from a woman yesterday who said that she decided after reading my book that she was going to report the abuse that happened to her. And so that, that, that gives me um, great solace. Um, and it, it, it makes me very proud too. I'm proud of them. Well, proud of them. And the reason she was able to do that because you had, and I'm going to use the word courage again. You can say no, I don't care. I'm going to use it. The word courage to actually write this book not just tell the story to the New Yorker, which was, you know, it, women started coming forward, but to actually write this book, which gives people, you know, the stages, the, you know, the, the different uh, types of abuse, the gaslighting, the manipulation that we talked about, and how you were able to, to leave. What was the, what was the moment that, told you that this was abusive and you needed to get out? I had known it was abusive for many, many months. And it was a few months after the relationship began that I recognized it was abusive. But it was when I started opening up to friends that I had my words reflected back to me. And it was when a friend asked me, after I described the patterns of controlling behavior and his excessive drinking, she asked me, knowing what to ask, does he hit you? And because I wasn't going to lie to her, I simply said yes. And she said that she wanted to connect me with a friend of hers who is a domestic violence expert. And it was after I connected with the domestic violence expert and told her my experience from beginning to end, the expert said, this is classic. And she being an expert had seen thousands and thousands of cases like mine. And of course, so many far more horrific and tragic than mine. Well, Tanya, I think, as you said, you received a great um, email or communication from someone just today. I know that you're reaching out, you're reaching so many people, so many women, so many people going through abusive relationships that, you know, we usually say, if I could help one person, that's great. I have a feeling you've helped more than one person. And we're talking about it. I know you've got to be exhausted about talking about it. Um, but it's, it's a conversation that is so necessary. And we need to do something about the the criminal justice system. Uh, I understand that Schneiderman, former attorney general, just recently had his law license suspended for a year. Wow. You know, I mean, come on. Um, and I know that, you know, the, the, the punishment should fit the crime. This man's been doing it for over 40 years. Mm-hmm. 40 years and in a year he'll probably be able to practice law again so we'll see about that there you go good um yeah 
And you never know what, what can change between now and then. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with somebody like you coming forward and writing this amazing book. So I thank you for joining me. Where can people find out more about you? Well, first, thank you so much, Sylvia. It was wonderful to speak with you. And thank you so much for the kind words that you had about the book. I really appreciate it. Because that's, um, you know, I, it, it, it has been hard to speak over and over again about the story. But it's in speaking with people like you that I recognize why I have to do it. So for that, I'm grateful. Um, people can find me at, um, it's tanyaturnsup.com. And I hope that all the viewers and listeners will buy the book and pass it along, share it, um, and re review it, if I could ask. Um, uh, and, and they can follow me at Tanya Author on all platforms. It's very simple, Tanya, T-A-N-Y-A, Author. And the book is Assume Nothing, a story of intimate violence. Again, Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. This has been a Life of Prey production.